As long as we live inside of a story that some bodies are more worthy than other bodies, then we live inside of a story of oppression. Radical self-love is the leveling of that idea. Radical self-love is if we are inherently lovable, if we are inherently enough, if we are inherently worthy, then the story that there is some more worthy body than some other body is a lie. It has to be, which means that the oppression that it's built on also must be a lie. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is a true visionary and a catalyst for change. New York Times bestselling author, Sonia Renee Taylor. Sonia is a renowned activist and a thought leader whose work in racial justice, body liberation, and radical self-love has reshaped conversations around identity and healing. At the heart of Sonia's groundbreaking book, The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love, lies a transformative message that dismantles shame and oppression offering a roadmap to reclaiming innate self-worth and fostering a revolutionary connection with the world around us. Beyond her notable talents as a poet, writer, and speaker, Sonia has a rich history in advocacy and activism, including work as a sexuality health educator, as a therapeutic wilderness counselor, as a mental health caseworker, director of peer education at HIPS, helping individual prostitutes survive in Washington, D.C., and capacity building and training director at the Los Angeles-based Black AIDS Institute. Sonia's journey has been marked by a dedication to reshaping narratives. Join us as we explore her journey, her insights, and her rather relentless pursuit of a world where self-love intersects with justice, redefining what it means to truly embrace others and ourselves. Sonia Renee Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. It is such a privilege to host you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Another piece from your book, The Body is Not Apology, you write, bodies are not the only designators of oppression, but all oppression is enacted on the body. And I think that's really key. And I would love for you to tell me more about that. When The Body is Not Apology was coming through me as a idea or as a framework, I was, I was like, what is the common denominator of our existence? What's the thing that we're all going to have to grapple with? And it became clear to me that the answer to that was the body. If It's the one thing we all have in common. They may look different. They may operate different. They have some variations. But if you're going to do this thing, you're going to do it in a body. <laughs> like that is the experience. And so given that we are going to do this experience in the body, it also becomes the site of how it is that we sort of parse out again, this externalized worthiness. It becomes the site of, well, is this something that I can control to gain my enoughness, to gain my worthiness? Mm -hmm. Is this some place where I can ascend higher on the ladder of hierarchy? How is it that I can make this body conform? How can others make this body conform? Right? Mm -hmm. So it became this locus of you know, what could be this locus of interdependence and connection became this locus of oppression and disconnection because of the ways in which we were relating to the body. Mm. And I felt like I could see that. And I was like, what would happen if we change that story, if we shift that narrative? Sonia, you write in your book, radical self-love can feel like an impossibility when observed aside the deluge of body shame all around us. But I also want you to know that radical self-love is not an impossibility. It's not even a destination. It's your inherent sense of self. When I began my own radical self-love journey, I, 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 
it was clear that I was always like searching for something. There's something, some place I'm going to get to. And when I get to that thing, then I will be lovable. Then I will be worthy. Then I will be enough. And I think that many of us orient our lives that way towards this external goal location that will determine our lovability, our enoughness. And in radical self-love, the journey for me of radical self-love was the recognition that the thing I was looking for, I have always been. And so Mm. actually the work is just how do I reconnect to that which has always been true, is always in existence, has never left, has never departed. Um, How do I call myself back to that place um, rather than to some externalized destination? Yeah, no, I love that. And, And I've heard you say too that bodies are political, right? Like the personal is political. Inherently. Yes. Inherently. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to go into that a little bit more deeply and bring in this concept of how radical self-love can disrupt. It is revolutionary. It is inherently interdependent. You know, and I am by no means the first person to say that the body is inherently political. Uh, But what we're talking about is what are the arbiters of power in our society? What are the machinations by which we disperse resource or withhold resource? How do we decide who gets and who doesn't get? Mm. And One of the foundational ways in which we've done that, certainly in our society, in Western society, under the constructs of colonization, Mm. is through the body. Mm. Is your body, does it fit inside of a dominant paradigm? Is it the body that we've decided is the more worthy body, the body that aligns with our particular worldview, ethos, power structure, et cetera? And so, you know, whiteness became an arbiter Mm of whether or not a body deserved freedom or not, right? Um, Maleness became an arbiter about whether or not a body deserved power, money, decision-making autonomy, right? Size, shape, all of these things became ways in which we either offered resource in the world or denied resource in the world. And so anytime we're talking about who has power and who doesn't have power, we're talking about politics, Mm. right? We're talking about a political sphere. And if who has power and who doesn't have power is decided in part, at least based on our bodies, then bodies are political. Mm. And inside of that story that bodies are political and that some bodies deserve more resource than other bodies, as long as we live inside of a story that some bodies are more worthy than other bodies, then we live inside of a story of oppression. Mm. It's in, there's no way to extract oppression from that shape. Right. Radical self-love is the leveling of that idea. Radical self-love is if we are inherently lovable, if we are inherently enough, if we are inherently worthy, then the story that there is some more worthy body than some other body is a lie. It has to be, which means that the oppression that it's built on also must be a lie. You have a really cool idea in your book about this this concept of living inside of someone else's story, living inside of someone else's imagination. Yes, yes. And that's that's what it is. When we buy into this collective narrative of what I call the ladder of bodily hierarchy, that there are some bodies that are, are better inherently, right? A thinner body is better inherently. An able body is better inherently. A cisgendered body is better inherently. A heterosexual body is better inherently. We have all of these stories. And when we live inside of that story, when I treat that story like it's true as a fat, black, 
queer, bald-headed woman. I am living, that's not my imagination. I didn't think up that story. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like, yes, white, thin, blonde women are better than me. I didn't come up with that, Uh (laughs) right? But I was was invited, born into that construct. Mm -hmm. And every time that I decide it's true, every time I play along with it, I'm living in someone else's imagination. Mm -hmm. I'm living in the imagination of colonialism, patriarchy, homophobia, heterophobia, you know, like I'm living inside of these constructs of oppression and disconnection. And the invitation inside of radical self-love is what would happen if I divested from somebody else's imagination? Then what wants to come through my imagination? Mm, I love that. It's a different world. I love that. What would happen? I mean, I'm just kind of just repeating that to, to let that sink in. What would happen if I divested myself from someone else's imagination? Yeah. And you have done so. You have done so. And I'm just, I'm, I try. <laughs> I try. What is, what is it like for you yeah. right now? Like in terms of you're fighting the good fight, how are you feeling? I am feeling incredible. I'm so grateful to, to actually get to say it. It's been interesting. I've been like teetering around it. Like, am I allowed to say I'm incredible? <laughs> but I am. <laughs> I am allowed to say I'm incredible. I feel like, you know, part of, I think, where this incredible comes from is that I don't feel like I'm fighting the good fight anymore. And I like that actually, I'm not fighting. I'm done fighting. You know, like this, the position of defense, the position of constantly trying to figure out how to battle this thing, right? It just, it's an exhausting, unsustainable way to be. And the more sustainable way to be, which I have, been exploring and playing with inside of myself is, again, what is the imagination where I am my freest, most joyful, most abundant, most loving, most just delicious self? What are the constructions of that imagination? What's in it? What am I doing? Where am I going? Who am I with? And as I play with that, I call this luscious, vibrant, beautiful world into being. And the more that I invite people into that world, the less invested we all become in that other world. And the issue is not that I have to fight that world. The issue is that I have to divest from it. Mm. The more we collectively divest from that world, we're the power sustaining it. We are the power that makes the oppressive system stand because we have decided to be in a relationship of mutuality with it. I'm divorcing oppression. (laughs) I'm divorcing it from my daily life. I'm divorcing it from the idea that it holds some sort of power over me. It doesn't mean that it isn't real, that the outcomes and experiences of it aren't real, but I don't need to give it any more power than it already holds. And so when I divest from it, what I do is I position myself in such a way that pathways that I could not see before become visible. Ways of being that are not inherently tied to those structures of pain and disconnection, new ways of being avail themselves to me. Mm. And so it's not so much like I'm going to pretend that's not there and it'll go away. It's I'm going to turn my attention to what I want to create such that more, such that I have greater visibility for what it is that I'm trying to move toward. Mm, wow. Love that. It feels See, good. <laughs> I, I, I get this, I get this sense from you that you use creativity as a way to sort of like divest from the malodorous, you know, yes. elements of society and create <laughs> yeah. these new ways of, of being. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I've always been a creative. I used to say that I came out of my mother's womb with jazz hands, which is really (laughs) uncomfortable for her. (laughs) But I've always been a natural performer. I've always loved art. I've always loved music. I've always loved singing and dancing and plays. And, you know, I, I find creativity is the, the birthplace of imagination. They, they go together, right? Like creativity and imagination are how we access the impossible and make it possible. Mm -hmm. And so playing inside of that space for me in whatever the way that is, whether that's writing poetry, whether that's, you know, writing books, whether that's singing with my best friends, what, no matter what it is, what I'm doing is being like, how do I keep the part of my of my consciousness that is inherently that wants to birth things how do i keep that part of my consciousness alive because if i can keep the part of my consciousness that wants to birth things alive then when it's time to birth a new world when it's time to birth a new way of being new relationships i've already been to lama's class i've already been working on it i've practiced my breathing you know uh-huh. yeah yeah creativity feels essential to me as part of it you know, I want to compliment you on a creative act that you do really well that not that many people do. And that's actually social media because <laughs> I, I, I started I started following you and there's this thing that you do on there called What's Up, Y'all. Yeah. And it's this video series where you extemporaneously kind of tackle some thought provoking topic that has sort of like come onto your onto your mind. And you go into reproductive freedom, the recent Supreme Court anti-affirmative action decision, talk about ghosting, talk about climate chaos. And what I want to ask you about today is AI, because I love this, <laughs> love this video on AI. And I would love to hear you explicate your concerns about generative AI. Yeah. So, you know, generally what's up y'all's come because I'm engaging with the world in some way and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> And then thoughts start to formulate, <laughs> ideas start to formulate, and, and I want to capture them in real time. And with AI, I, you know, I sort of fell into this rabbit hole uh, watching what was going on with it and sort of this rapid development of this massively impactful piece of technology that we were cultivating. And I just had questions immediately because I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm very much into astrology. And so my Scorpio nature is like, What's underneath that? And I immediately was just a little suspicious. I was just like, so we are amassing infinite amounts of information inside of a computer. And then that computer is going to just start doing things for us. Again, whose imagination? Whose information is in here? Right. And is it the world we're already living? If, if that's the world we're dumping into this machine, then what we're doing is we're codifying this way of thinking as as the premier and prominent way of thinking forward. And I'm, I'm, you know, uh, horrified at that idea. And the other piece about it, I listened to um, the founder of chat GPT. And as I was listening to him talk, I was like, you just want a slave. Like you actually just want to create technology to do things that you don't want to do. Where have we seen that before? (laughs) Wait a minute. This looks a little familiar. I was like, oh, it's so sneaky and subversive the way in which the psychology of domination works that People can't even see it moving in themselves because it's so second nature to them at this Mm. point. And I was like, he can't hear himself. He can't hear 
the underlying expectation that there ought to be something that alleviates him from having to do life the way all people have to do life. He can't hear Mm -hmm. it, but we need to hear it because we also have those same underlying impulses. And if we are not intentional and mindful, those impulses will recreate the exact same circumstances that we have already lived through as a result of that particular desire. It's an opportunity to see how the past is meeting the future in this really interesting way and saying, will you make a different choice point? Or this is a choice point. Will you make the same kind of decision you made in the past or will you make a new one? Can you see the lesson? And I was like, I'm not sure we see the lesson. And so let me name it out loud. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. There was also a really funny point where you're like, hmm, chat GPT sometimes says things that are not true, but acts like, <laughs> act like it is true. Where have we seen that but before? But acts like it knows. <laughs> mm, who does that? Yeah, it's just like, come on, y'all. We're This chat GPT sounds like a bro. <laughs> and <laughs> I wonder who built it, right? <laughs> it's like, come on, we, we got to do better. We got to do better. I had an interesting AI what you're talking about absolutely is is super important. And I'm still sort of like an AI optimist because I think about it, the generative AI, not just in terms of like a bot that's going to voice language, but as ways that can create video and art and photo. And like, that's my, that's what gets me excited. Mm-hmm. But I was working on this video for Esalen about two months ago, and it was a documentary based piece. And of course, with documentary pieces, you always are going to need some sort of drawing to explicate your point of view if you don't have the original footage. So I was like, okay, I'm going to play with this new technology. And I brought in um, Midjourney. It's a text to image creator. And if you type in like woman and a baby, you get like 99% white woman and baby. And not only that, but you get thin. You get like model looking images because it's (laughs) trained on this corpus of of models and such. And it's really problematic. Yeah. There's a, you know, it's, I talk about in the body is not an apology, the default body, right? What is the body that we imagine, see, decide is okay. That's the body we fed AI, right? And so if that's the body we fed AI, we have reinscribed that particular aspect of domination. And that's my concern with AI. It's not like, I'm like, I think it could be brilliant. I think it could be transformative. I think we could do amazing things. But if we are, are if we are inside mm-hmm. of a particular imagination, we will create a supercomputer that operates off of that imagination. Yeah. And that's not that we've already seen what that's done for us. It's how we've landed here teetering on the brink of extinction. Mm. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just so glad that you brought up this concept of the default body. It is so deep and it's so useful to so much of what you're saying. And I think it opens up a door to a greater conversation about the human potential movement. On an interview, you had this this interesting point where you said this world of personal growth, it kind of misses the opportunity to change the external world. It's always been my position that the internal world, that our own transformation is inextricable from social transformation, from the transformation of the external world in so much as we recognize it as such. And I think that the challenge has been that we really present it as this binary experience. We've got, you know, movement people and political people who are like, change the world. And they're like, and I have no intentions on looking at my own trauma, my own ways of being, my own particular orientation to pain, avoidance, escapism. I won't look. And then we have another group of people who are like, 
I must transcend and change. I've, I meditate 30 hours a day and I have escaped all of the material outcomes of, you know, the external world. And great. That's wonderful for you. Wonderful. But, and, and what of the remaining amount of pain and disconnection and, and, you know, malodorous experiences that exist in the world? Where is it that you meet that experience? And I was thinking about Michelangelo's painting of the hand reaching to touch the finger of God, right? And what I see in that is like, our assignment is to close the gap. Our assignment is to bring the transcendent to the imminent. Our assignment is to bring that which is internal into us to make manifest in the external world. Our assignment is that Octavia Butler says, everything you touch, you change. Everything you change, changes you. God is change. Our, our assignment is to be changed such that we change. To be an embodiment of change, an embodiment of transformation, such that the conditions of the world are transformed. I want to transform such that the world is transformed because I actually know that there is no separation between me and the world. There is no my experience and their experience. It is one experience. It is unity consciousness. As I become more conscious, so too does the world, only in so much as I recognize that I too am the in the world is me. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So beautiful. You mentioned these steps that we can take to kind of cultivate radical self-love. And there's this pillar of practice that you bring up that I wanted you to elaborate on uh, because it, it touched me. It, it resonated for me, this idea of an inside voice. Yeah. And you know, our inside voice, the way that I talk about our inside voices, it's the narrative, you know, we are constantly, I think I, this certainly was most challenging for me, even as I was writing the book, when it, when it really became aware, I was like, most of the thoughts I think aren't my thoughts. This isn't even this isn't even my mind. Who is, what's happening in wow. here? And I was like, oh, this story of like autonomy and sovereignty and all of my ideas is actually a total fiction. I am, I have been just inundated and indoctrinated with messages and ideas and, and all sorts of things that run unfiltered and unchecked. And they talk all day long to me. They tell me all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Some of them are great ideas. Most of them are trash <laughs> and they are not mine. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, but there is an authentic hearing. That's the inside voice. There's an authentic knowing inside of me that usually doesn't come from my mind. For me, it comes from, I don't even, I can't name where it comes from because it is beyond language, because it is before language. It is it is a knowing that exists before and beyond those places. And that's my inside voice. That's the voice that knew that there was a thing called radical self-love and that it was my inherent self. But I'm not trained to listen to that voice. I'm not trained to trust that voice. I'm not trained to believe that voice. I'm trained to listen to the outside voice, the voice of indoctrination, the voice of story, the voice of narrative, the voice of trauma, the voice of all of my collective experiences over the decades. And that voice becomes so loud that it tells the inherent one to shut up. Mm -hmm. 
You don't, don't believe Mm. that. Don't trust yourself. That thing you think, you know, you don't know that. And we have become so deeply disconnected and distrustful of ourselves, distrustful of that inside voice that is constantly calling to us, constantly trying to return us to alignment in our most authentic selves. But we haven't, we don't have efficacy. We don't have practice in how to hear it and stay with it. And so part of what you know, part of what I was offering in some of those tools is how do I turn down the volume on that outside voice such that the inside voice becomes a clearer, more resonant sound that I can actually respond to and move from. Mm. Yeah, it's cool to hear you talk about an an inside voice, because when I think about you and your work, I really do think about voice, Mm -hmm. your external voice, the way that you communicate your gift as a communicator, whether it's through the TED Talks that I've watched or through the book that I had the chance to listen to. And I know you came out of sort of like the slam poetry <laughs> world, yeah. right? You know, uh, one just wondering if like your external voice clarified or matured in some way as you began to bring in your inside voice. Oh, absolutely. I think <laughs> I, it's a gift and a curse to be good with words, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a way in which I could say things very authoritatively. I, I could be chat GPT. You're the AI. I could say some, I am AI. I'm going to say it to you like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what nothing of what I'm talking about. But I'm very persuasive because it's worded well. And so there's a lot of my own BS that I really started to believe because I said it so well. <laughs> and it's been, but that authentic voice that listening to that inside voice has one, it, it allows me to be a better BS detector inside myself. Mm-hmm. I'm better able to be like, girl, stop lying to your, you know, you lying to yourself mm. <laughs> and, and like starting to be like, can I get really honest with me? That inside voice allows me to be in the nuance and complexity and ambiguity of life so much more easily than my pretend outside voice ever did. I am like, guess what, y'all? I don't know. Most things. I do not know. (laughs) I have zero answers. And that's probably the thing I can say most confidently with most self-assuredness is I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And my willingness to be inside of the I don't know of life nor do I need to know of life. It has allowed life to be a wonder. It has allowed life to be like, let me surprise you. Guess what? Now that you don't know, I can surprise you. Yeah. I can I can just bestow endless wonder upon you because finally you don't know. Oh my goodness. You know? Yeah, that's huge. I want to ask you about teaching and the the work that you do within your workshops. What is it that you love to teach and talk about, and even more, what are the people who come to your workshops looking for? What are what are the challenges that are like most evident for them that they, you know, that they need you for? Yeah, you know, I my relationship with teaching has really shifted over the years, primarily because what I, you know, when I first started doing workshops and things like that, is folks definitely sort of trying to sort through in the early days their the ways they had collapsed radical self-love with self-confidence and self-esteem and I don't really feel good about myself and 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 me being like what's underneath that right like that's a sort of more less substantive more surface level concern but there's something underneath that what is that and as the work has evolved and as I have evolved and shifted what I've realized is that 
it's not my job to have the answer, nor does it serve people for me to, again, be the person who's like, let me show you how to radically love yourself. No. What I'm more interested in is how do I ask the kind of questions that encourage you to be your own investigator in your own world, for you to become curious and inquisitive about your own internal process and to be and to not be so terrified of exploring it that you just shut it out completely. Like the invitation is, can you get curious enough to look inside you and trust that what you find, what I'm telling you you're going to find is radical self-love. So here I've taken some of the scary out of it. At the end of the day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's at the root there is inconceivable love, unfathomable love. That's what's there. So with me promising you that that's what's there. What are you willing to ask yourself to get curious and to look, to see what's in the way so you can get to your unfathomable love? Mm. And I think that that has been really how I've started to move in terms of teaching, you know, which is less like, I don't want to teach you. I want you to be curious. And I'm just here to be like some good, solid support for you to get curious about your own journey and one that frees me up from my own little codependent tendencies that I'm supposed to save the world and lead everybody and whatever that else is. And it leaves people to the dignity of their own journey. Mm. And that has felt really, really, really important Mm. and has been a key sort of transition in my work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you like a, a question or two more, and then we can go into a speed round if you're into it. Are you cool with a speed round? Totally down for it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I heard you express this point of view in this interview with Glennon Doyle on podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. This fact that besides the physical bodies that we live in and work in, we also have spiritual and etheric bodies and that that often gets ignored. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels very much like the transition of my work. Like I feel like I've talked about the body in its corporal sense for decades Mm -hmm. now. Y'all carry that on if you want to. I'm much more interested in the transcendent body. I'm interested in what do our souls know that we're being asked to embody in this lifetime for the sake of experiencing all of life through the etheric, all of life through the transcendent. I, I want to grow to the grocery store and I want it to be a spiritual experience. And the only way that I can allow that in is if I recognize myself as the spiritual experience, as spirit. You know, I mean, we say it in these platitudes and, and I get it because I've said it in the platitudes myself and it's just something totally different when it becomes an embodied experience. It's like, right, we are, you know, we are, spiritual beings having a human experience. The question is, can we be spiritual beings making the human experience spiritual? That's what I want, is can I be spirit embodied and make everything about life spirit, sacred, right? Holy. Can all of it be holy? And I'm so much more interested in that world. (laughs) It's a way, in in terms of this conversation of whose imagination do I want to live in, it's a way more exciting place to be. The grocery store gets way sexier when it's all holy, right? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) 
everything gets richer, more vibrant, more incredible. Like the amount of times in the last couple of weeks that I've just like cried into a bowl of fruit because I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that I have a bowl of bounty that grew off of trees to feed my body. The amount of times that I'm connected to that at a, at this deep level of oneness I'm like, who doesn't want that all the time? That's great. <laughs> like, that's a beautiful, you know, just like un- undescribable way to be in existence. And we have access to that if we allow ourselves to connect to that experience. And that's really where I feel like I want to explore now. Mm. Wow. That's just great. I'm going to sign up for Sonia GPT like, really quick. Really quick. <laughs> uh, Okay. Welcome to the speed round. All right. What is a self-care ritual that you use and love? My daily meditation is essential. Daily meditation, it it just allows me to not have the outside voices and all of that be the first thing I hear every day. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh no, the first thing I hear every day is my own return to, to silence, to consciousness, to source. That's the first place. Then the rest of y'all can come in and say what you're going to say after. <laughs> <laughs> How long do you meditate for? What's your What's your minimum? I mean, I I can go as you know short as five minutes. Generally, my morning meditation is about thirty mm-hmm. minutes. What are you loving about yourself, like recently? What are you really appreciating about yourself? Oh, I am loving how I'm loving how much I've learned to take good care of myself. I think it was an assignment I really wanted somebody else to do for me for a very long time. <laughs> like no you take care of me and and now and now that i realize that nobody else is coming to do that and no one else can do it as well as i can do it i take a lot of joy and pride in taking good care of myself and it it feels good it feels yeah i feel like good job sonia you're from pittsburgh if i'm not mistaken in a complicated kind of way but yeah <laughs> i want to know if there's anything uniquely pittsburghian about you is there anything pittsburghian about your journey Oh, that's so interesting. That's a great question no one's ever asked. I mean, hoagies, I'm going to always call it a hoagie. Yeah, I'm going to always call it a hoagie and I'll always call it a pop. So, you know, but I know pop is like Midwest general, but hoagie feels very Pittsburgh. So so it's linguistic. Linguistic, okay. yeah. <laughs> I've never been a yin's person. Nebby, is, which means nosy, is very Pittsburgh, mm. so... I will call people Nebby. It's mostly lingu- little linguistic tics that I still have from Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, okay. What about the altered state or psychedelics? Do those hold interest for you? Yes. I have done mushrooms and had both a profound, b- both. I've done them twice. Both times were profound, one in a glorious way, one in a terrible way. Uh, <laughs> and um, last year um, I did ayahuasca and yahe for the first time. I did a three session plant medicine journey that was utterly transformative. And I believe that there is, first of all, I held such deep and sacred honor for the holders of that medicine and the generosity in which they have extended that medicine to the larger world. And I have such consciousness about our tendency to exploit everything. And how is it that we hold and balance that generosity without exploitation such that that gift that is those medicines. Yeah. Can we be in right relationship? Can we be in right relationship with it? When in right relationship, it has profound possibilities to make the human journey sacred. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What 
is it like to be a public figure? You know, what what has it been it like to transition to being just, you know, you, Sonia, and then to be somebody who's well-known and has several TED Talks and, you know, a very popular book and a presence, et cetera, and, and can go to an Alicia Keys concert and get to meet Alicia Keys? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, you know, I've been having this conversation a lot because I'm taken aback by it. You know, I think both the pandemic, uh, and a level of particular isolation and my visibility expanded during the pandemic. So people were seeing me, but in the digital realm and I was living in New Zealand. So there was a real distancing between me and this particular notoriety. And I've, been experiencing it up close more often now and it's still weird and unnerving and strange and like I don't know why you know me (laughs) like because in my brain I don't know why anybody would know me because I forget that there are these things out in the world that aren't connected to my daily life people experience them they they are having an experience with me that I'm separate of and that's uh odd um and at the same time I never stop being really aware and really grateful and mindful of what it means to have impact and what it means to have reach Mm -hmm. and that there's a responsibility that comes with that, that I feel profoundly connected to, profoundly connected to. This is an honor to have people's attention in this way. What will you do with it? Mm -hmm. One cool thing I think about where you are and the way that you approach it right now is that you've already done, you know, the formal TED Talk, you've already had your book, the really big, wide, expansive things. And you're able to, at this point, go onto your social media and create something like What's Up, Y'all? That's just you talking to your phone in an informal way inside your house. And I think it's extremely powerful. Mm. It's appropriate to your message, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like, yeah, I'm not interested, you know, I I have a What's Up, Y'all? and celebrity culture and the problems with it. (laughs) I'm not interested in being a celebrity. I'm interested. I'm interested in sharing my ideas. I'm interested in in giving my unique offering to the world. And I'm open to allowing that to be as expansive as it is supposed to be, as is appropriate for what life wants to do through me. And I I am very clear that I'm just a reflection of you. Mm. That's what I am. I'm a reflection of you. And so I'm like, whatever you see... Boo is you. <laughs> and so we don't need to be formal about it. We don't need to be like, let's, let's just be together in, in our truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and our truth doesn't have hierarchy. I'm not interested in hierarchy anymore. So. Okay. One or two more, because I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> okay. You, you're such a great speaker. I know you've been doing it a long time. Is there anything that you'd be willing to share, you know, tips for, and this could be body tips, this could be content wise, but tips for presenting in front of lots of people. What, how do you harness your power? How do you be you? That's a good question. I mean, I think that I've always understood that energy that often that can be translated as fear, right? Like people who have stage fright and that sort of thing. And I'm like, it's all actually the same energy. It's just how it is. We're going to shape it. I get stage fright, or I used to, not so much anyway. I haven't been on a stage in such a long time. (laughs) I just usually talk to people on computers. (laughs) But I used to get stage fright. And what I realized was like, I just, stage fright is a way to language. I have an experience of energetic surge in me right now, right? Now, I could call that energetic surge fear. Or I could call that energetic surge 
um, you know, uh, I don't catalytic energy, <laughs> right? It's it is something that wants to move through me. Can I get centered enough, right, such that I get out of the way, such that that energy can come through and deliver? It's not, stop being you on the stage. And I know that's counter to a lot of other people's sayings. Like, no, be the authentic you. No, stop being you. Be a vessel. Yeah. Be a vessel. Yeah. Be a vessel for life to come through you. Mm -hmm. It's so much less work. You don't even have to worry about whether or not you have the, my, my spiritual teacher slash therapist often says to me, she was telling me some uh, analogy of some guru who was talking to his teacher and saying like, oh, I'm supposed to, you know, they're asking me to teach on the Bhagavad Gita. And his spiritual teacher said, don't worry about it. The Bhagavad Gita will teach itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. is, that is really what it is. It's like, if someone's inviting you to do something, the more that you are able to move out of the way and allow yourself to be a channel, the clearer everything comes through. It's not you. It's, it is through you, not of you. Would you recommend that same point of view for writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. If, even if that's the meditation before you begin the writing, before you begin the speaking, whatever it is, life, I am inviting, I am, I am willing to be a vessel for you to flow through me right now. Mm. Allow that meditation to come through and then see what wants to authentically transmit through you. Mm. What's next for you creatively, like what, or what's now for you creatively that you would be open to sharing? Mm. You know, I'm. That's a great question, and it's sort of up in the air in a multitude of ways. Um, I I had plans. I had very big plans that I thought were happening, and then life was like, "That's cute." No, that's not what's happening. <laughs> so those are paused right now. Um, I do have a children's book coming out in October, the Book of Radical Answers real questions from real kids just like you. And it's, I sort of crowdsourced questions from young people between the ages of 10 and 14 from all around the country and abroad on every conceivable subject area of life, Mm -hmm. climate change, religion, puberty, sex, gender, everything. And I offer from sort of my auntie Sonia radical self-love framework answers to some of these questions that young people are asking. And when I don't feel like I have the answer, um, I bring in experts in that subject area who can speak to what is the most honest, transparent, honoring, radical self-love response that I can give to this particular question, whether the question is, what size will my penis be? Or (laughs) will we survive climate change and I live to be an adult? You know, like all of those questions. And so I'm really excited about that. That book is out uh, in the second week of October of this year. And so that and then a bunch of other stuff. I'm doing a great talk with myself, uh, Jessica, the awesome astrologer, Jessica Lignato, and my favorite boo and collaborator, Adrian Marie Brown, um, are doing a a talk called Joy in the Time of Apocalypse. That's on August August 6th. And we're going to be talking about how astrology and spirituality and emergent strategies, how all these things can coalesce such that we might have thriving even in these complicated times. Sonia Renee Taylor, this has been, I mean, this has been such a joy. This has been a wonderful interview and I've gained so much and and learned so much. Would you talk about the ways that folks can find pieces of content that you've created out in the world and your social and your book, please? Yeah, absolutely. So you can get the books, The Body's Not an Apology, 
first edition, second edition, Your Body's Not Apology Workbook, The Journal of Radical Permission, <laughs> any of the books, any place the books are sold, you can pre-order the Book of Radical Answers. Um, any place books are sold, you can do that. Uh, you can hang out with me in the digital space. Sometimes I'm on Instagram at Sonia Renee Taylor. You can always find me on Patreon at Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, and... Yeah, those are probably the best ways to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you. It's been a joy being in a conversation with you today. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.